Okay, well, thank you very much for the invitation. Um, the work I'm going to be talking about today is um, very much a collaborative project. Um, so it's based on a paper that we've actually written. Uh, we're in the final stages of polishing it for submission. It's a review article for which we hope to, we're going to send to Sociology of Health and Illness. It's been written with Kate Viner, who is um, a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Manchester and used to be at Nottingham, and Martin Richards, who I think many of you will probably know and were retired uh, not so long ago from uh, Cambridge. And we've been working on this uh, paper looking at this notion of geneticisation, which I'll say quite a bit more about in a minute. So it's very much it's with their consent that we're road testing the final bit, so I'm very interested in a critical discussion. If you can think this is completely wrong or some elements of this paper need serious revision, then that's what I want to hear, basically. Um, so it's very much an overview of the field, uh, partly based on um, a, in a study of other people's work, on our own work. I mean, the, between the three of us, we've, we've done quite a lot of work in this area. Um, in terms of methods, we've obviously done sort of classic uh, lit review techniques. Uh, it's not systematic in the medical sense, but it's comprehensive. We've also done some bibliometrics to look at sort of tracking of the idea through the literature. But the focus is very much on the social sciences. I'll touch on a few other areas like philosophy, a little bit of anthropology, which I, I, don't, I must confess I'm not massively familiar with, uh, and um, some aspects of science policy. So, so that's just, it's, as I say, it's very much a collaborative paper, though I'm here to take full responsibility for anything that's said today. So, um, so the aim is basically placing first this in a broader context of this notion of the genetic or genomic revolution, and that's a sort of concept I'm very interested in being critical around, exploring that. In particular, I'm interested in placing that in the context of how we might understand the dynamics of expectations. I'll explain what, that, what I mean by that. But how are expectations around the new genetics and new genomics uh, being socially mobilised? What is their formative function, essentially, in this domain? So that's part of what this is about. I'll then set out the geneticisation thesis uh, to explain what it means. And then the bulk of the talk will be reviewing under a number of headings, if you like, the evidence for this. Um, so it's referring mainly to empirical studies. Um, we can talk about the normative dimension of this as well uh, as part of that. It's trying to make some sort of assessment. Has it happened? I'd say it's rather rather normative sort of question. But I'm interested at the end in reflecting on the way in which social science broadly speaking, has played a role in what might be called the making of these biofutures. So I'll explain this as we go along, but that's the, the broad strategy, I'd say. It's, a, it's a, very much an, a sort of overview. Some of it, I hope, um, or most of it, I hope, will be convincing. Some of it, if, you, if we can ask uh, more questions in more detail, if, if I present it rather superficially. So, Okay. So the thing I'm really interested in conceptually, so this is my conceptual starting point, uh, and I've been going on about this for a number of years, <coughs> I've worked with collaboratively with a number of people, in particular Nick Brown at the University of York, in developing some ideas around this, as well as Adam Hedgeco at Cardiff. What might be called the sociology of socio-technical expectations. So how do promises, visions, and other forms of expectation shape technical change? So how does this, this promise talk, these high expectations around genetics, shape the development and dynamics of this particular domain. 
So in what way can we think about using the future to shape the present? This is a sort of formative idea I'm sure you're familiar with in, in broad terms. But if we think of the future as something that can only be known in the present, we don't have a crystal ball, how does the way we construct and think about the future as an object shape what is done in the name of innovation in this case? So it can be used... Um, second talk today I'll be talking much more about sort of the practical aspects of this about how particular promises around genomics have mobilised particular research programmes particular commitments in the health system in terms of developing new services winning political support so they play a very powerful performative role in shaping and defining the direction of health and science and technology policy so this is an example this area on geneticisation is an example of how we might uh, explore the construction of futures from a sort of sociological, in my case, perspective. Um, there's been work done by historians, Gasalik in particular, is looking at sort of history of the future in the past. So in the 19th century in, in Germany and continental Europe, other people have been looking at the role of so-called hype in uh, mobilising, shaping these emerging domains around things like synthetic biology or stem cells. So promissory technologies, I suppose that's what, coming once you adopt this perspective, how you might think about a field such as genomics. So it's a field in the making. Um, it's still, I mean, it's, it's, you could say, well, it's been made, but there are some aspects of it are still in the making in terms of its applications. I mean, one of the problems, as I'll talk about, has been the translation of science into practice has been extremely problematic. So they're still surrounded by a high level of technical, commercial, regulatory, political, economic social uncertainty around some key aspects of the technology, in part because the pace of, if you like, scientific and some aspects of technical change in terms of, say, the cost of sequencing is now falling through the floor, basically. So all sorts of things that were not possible before now seem possible. It's still very much a field that's dynamic. So I mentioned the key role of visions of the future in shaping the behaviour of actors, scientists, investors, firms, regulators, public policy, and I suppose critically examining these promises specific to genomics is the key task at hand today in this talk. So I, I just had a quick scan of Google Images and, uh, for Genetic Revolution. And these are the books that I found in five minutes that had Genetic Revolution in their title. As a trope, it's astonishing. It's just completely ubiquitous. People who should know better still use it. I mean, I suspect because their publishers say we should put it in the title or sell more books. But um, so clearly, the expectations around this have been very, very high for a long period, for the last twenty years, basically, and continue today. It's a policy document. Again, I'll be talking about this afternoon, which still talks about revolution in one of its opening phrases. It's still the way in which many people wish to portray this field in public. So. As I'm sure you know, the seminar series is part of that. The realm of genetics and genomics has been a major focus of debate and research in science, medicine, policy, social sciences, philosophy, anthropology. And the core assumption behind this notion of the revolution is that these technologies will have a major impact in, in the future, maybe even now, we can debate that, uh, in medicine, in society, and again, I'll talk about how that we can conceptualise them. And part of that has been very important in the rationale behind the so-called ELSI programme, so that's the ethical, legal and social issues 
around genomics. So 3% of the money initially put into the Human Genome Project in the States and a significant amount of money in this country supported by both the ESRC and the Wellcome Trust were to investigate the so-called ELSIs surrounding the new genetics and the new genomics. And I benefited, and my colleagues benefited greatly from something of a gravy train over the last uh, 10, 15 years of working in this area, and dedicated research centres have come into being. So the social science response has been part of that. I say these new research programmes, journals, conferences, institutes, genome centres. Um, but what I'm interested in today are these new conceptual tools that have been used and developed, in part through this social science engagement with this field, uh, to analyse the, the transformation or the apparent transformation associated with genetics and genomics. So, again, I'm sure some of you are familiar with these notions of genetization, which I'll talk in detail today. But bioeconomy, this notion that we got a, getting a new uh, type of economic activity, transaction, value created around the commodification of biological objects. Biosociality, this notion that new biosocial hybrid identities are being created. So people are starting to identify in terms of new categories created as a result of the genetics around, for example, patient organisations that advocate on behalf of diseases such as Huntington's. Biological citizenship, that's related to the biosociology concept in terms of what new rights and obligations are emerging and being constructed in relationship to these new forms of identity. Biomedicalization is a sort of twist on this long-standing medicalization thesis, which is basically about the extension of the power of the medical profession into new areas to define uh, forms of social life, expand the bounds of medicine, medical authority. And so by putting the bio in front sort of gives it a slightly different spin in terms of these emerging technologies. So there's a raft of concepts and ideas that have been developed within the social sciences that are attempting to theorise, think carefully, analyse these things. So the one today at stake is geneticisation. So this has been a very influential concept, and I'm going to set it out in some detail, and, and perhaps it's a, you know, slightly unfair uh, to do this. I don't want to just say, I've been got this all wrong. It's a slightly more sophisticated analysis, I hope. But I, so I'm not setting her up to sort of shoot her down. I'm saying that lots of people have been uh, influenced in very significant ways in their research and their thinking about this by this notion. So uh, I think it's a, a very widely held, um, or has at times been a very widely held notion and concept within not just sociology, anthropology, philosophy, bioethics, um, and a number of other domains. So when we did our literature review, it, it, it seeps out into clinical medicine, it seeps out into geography and all sorts of other, other domains. So it's travelled quite a long way as a, as a conceptual framework. So the original formulation is from this 1991 paper, um, an ongoing process by which differences between individuals reduce their DNA codes with most disorders, behaviours and psychological variations defined at least in part as genetic in origin. So it refers as well to the process of which in intervention employing genetic technology is adopted to manage problems in health. Through this process, human biology is incorrectly equated with human genetics, implying that the latter acts alone to make us each the organism she or he is. 
There's a lot in this, and again, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about this analytically, but I think the key thing about Abilene's work is it's not just purely an analytical critique, it's also a political and normative critique. Basically, geneticization is seen as something that is problematic from a political point of view, and it reflects her, her own history as a health activist, a feminist health activist, uh, arguing for a public health approach uh, in contrast to what was seen as a very reductionist approach within genetics. So the central tenets, this is work Kate Viner sort of reviewed all of her oeuvre uh, over the years and then boiled it down to these sort of six headings. Um, so de- genetics is becoming the dominant discourse. That's the dominant discourse within health, medicine, policy, in relationship to human health and behaviour, or certainly human health, that these discourses are essentially reductionist and deterministic, and we can have a debate about what that means, but I think you've probably got some sort of sense of, of that. That society is becoming stratified along genetic lines, I think, in terms of different sorts of social categories, that might be different disease categories, perhaps different types of, of social identities, race, for example. Um, the geneticization is now affecting our healthcare practices and our values and attitudes within healthcare. So this is having a significant impact in the clinic in terms of what is done to patients, the types of techniques, the types of knowledge that's being constructed. Fifthly, the genetic discourses suggest that genetic research is imperative for future health improvements. So we might talk about the colonization of health futures. This idea that genomics promises or genetics promises the way forwards, the best way forwards in terms of human uh, improvements in human health in the future. And then finally, that genetics reflects the power of genetics as a discipline to identify and classify health problems. So it was set up, there's not been a single formulation of geneticization thesis in this way, but this is broadly capturing what Lippmann set out to do. And I'm going to use these sorts of headings a bit later to sort of look how it, it measures up in some senses. I say that this is not meant as a, in any sense as an attack or a critique of that work. I think it's, I'll say, this, these are shared things within the field as a whole. Okay. As I mentioned before, I think it's important to see this is not just um, about the expansion of genetic discourses about disease, but Littman was also placing this within this wider critique of dominant assumptions within biomedicine. So the medicalisation thesis, Peter Comrade's work around this, for example, might be seen as belonging to that. Adele Clark and the biomedicalisation thesis, Nicholas Rosen, some of his work, might also be cast as, as part of a broader critique within social theory, within biosociologists and other people, about looking at the underlying assumptions within biomedicine, about, if you like, the, the sort of dominant paradigm which is trying to molecularise uh, health. Um, so the critique is not specific to genetics per se, though it's made in this case as a, as a theoretical construct. And in, so in setting this out, you know, Littman's saying, why not seek to change employment, income support, housing, taxation policy, influence the probabilities from this in the population instead of, or at least in addition to lobbying for lifestyle modifications. So I think that's, a, I say, that's where this is coming politically and normatively. Um, so I think it uh, belongs, as I say, to a much broader set of uh, debates within the sociology of health and illness. Okay. So the debate 
after Littmans, there's a lot, been a lot of debate about the democratisation thesis. There's been various people who've sort of reformulated. It's Adam Hedgeco, for example, who've uh, taken exception to it, who've said, well, we like some bits and not others. Um, so the debate centred around, is it a description or is it an analytical framework? I mean, is it just something that's describing what's happening or is there something, does it have more purchase as a, as a framework in terms of providing a deeper analysis? There's been debates about the empirical basis for its claim, and I suppose that's to some extent what I'm focusing on today, that I'm hoping I'm not just doing that. I say this issue about normativity, um, is it possible to see it strip or to look at the general association thesis without having these political commitments to a critique of biomedicine as a whole? Um, and there's some philosophers who say, even if the empirical basis wasn't there, it wasn't happening, they still think it's useful because it provides a framework for normative critique. This is something that shouldn't happen. This is something for which we should argue for a different approach. There's issues about agency. Clearly, Littman, this from the sixth point in my list, mainly attributes agency to, and I think a lot of other theorists and empirical researchers until recently, recently attributed agency mainly to profession such as medicine or, or science. So what's the role of patients here? This is about disciplinary boundary work. I'll maybe come back to that in a minute, uh, well, towards the end. And there's issues about the relationship to biomedicalization. Is geneticization a subset of biomedicalization or is it something separate? So I'll try and engage with most of these questions as I sort of talk us through the different fields where um, social scientists have tried to engage with the thesis. So I'm going to look at these five areas where there's been work done. To try and look to what extent is there is there social scientific work that's shown, you know, geneticization occurring, if you like. I'll come back to the normative questions at the end. Um, this is so this is in relation to science, discourses and practice, clinical practice, ethics and governance, popular culture, and lay discourses and practice. I'm going to present a lot of, well, quite a few sort of headlines of, of work in this area. We can talk more about them in questions. Some of these, my co-authors know more about than me. Uh, so if I uh, later appear to be slightly ignorant, then I think I, I think I can defend the whole thing. But, you know, um, and I'm nervous here about talking about kinship because that's Martin Richards' thing. And anthropology departments are not very strong on that sort of thing. So I, I may struggle, but um, we, we, we shall see. Okay. So I say I'm going to walk through the different areas that social science scientists <coughs> have engaged with the geneticization thesis. The main purpose of doing this is because I think there's some important lessons this tells us about the relationship between new forms of knowledge, in this case genetics, and social structures, institutions, practices, or whatever. The first one is, is not so much a for a sociological thing, I think Christine Hauskeller, who came, I think previously, sort of represents this set of people who sit on the boundaries between sociology and philosophy, whatever. So there's been a set of people who've engaged with a debate about the status of the gene. They've done work, done work, uh, looking at genetic discourses within science. Um, you know, and looking at the ways in which genetic discourse has been symptomatic of the dominant discourse of environmental medicine and ignore the socio socioeconomic determinants of health. 
Um, so the critique uh, following Lippmann, very much in this vein of work, being saying, well, there's the poor mo- modelling of the interaction with the environment. What's really interesting, I've done a little bit of work on this, is that when people talk about gene-environment interactions, so, sorry to backtrack, when the human genome was first proposed, people very much saw genes as working in isolation. You know, they were looking for genes for simple causes, genetic causes. What's happened over the last 20 years is there's been a greater emphasis on the interaction between genes and environment as the framework. But what's really interesting, this work sort of looked at this and there's been significant work since Gannett, uh, is that the environment is often underspecified. So even in models that look at gene-environment interaction, the focus is still very much on the biological dimension of that rather than the environment. So the, the, the social environment is almost completely absent. When people talk about the environment, they mean the physical environment in terms of uh, toxic substances and things like that. There's big debates about causation as well. There's been quite a bit of work particularly done by people at Eugenics in Exeter, uh, John Dupre, who's a philosopher of biology, but some of the colleagues who have a more sociological spin, looking at causation. And what's interesting is, you know, can we attribute causation in any simple way to a gene? It's I'm not going to spend long talking about this, but what's interesting is there's a set of contemporary debates within the biology at this very moment about the extent to which the central tenets and the central dogma set out by Watson and Crick and developed by other people in the 1960s and 70s still hold completely true. There's been a, um, a sort of a strong interest in so-called epigenetics as a way of uh, rethinking about uh, the relationship between um, you know, the genome and other bio- biological mechanisms and how that might be mediating processes or relationships to the environment. So there's a, if you're interested in there's a very interesting book by Eva Jablonka called Evolution in Four Dimensions. It's a little technical, but it's meant as a, 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 a read for a lay person. And she's making a case for a rethinking. It's not saying this is all the classic central dogmas all wrong, but a rethinking of how we might think about uh, these relationships. It's still a biological book. So anyways, so there has been a critique of this that reflects uh, maybe ongoing discussions within biology. More significantly, I think, in terms of the social sciences, uh, there's been work looking at how geneticization has been accomplished in practice. So what scientific discourses have been created around specific diseases? Um, so I'm talking about the work in particular people like Adam Hedgeco or Hall, who've looked, taken specific disease categories schizophrenia in, in uh, Hedgeco's case, in some of his work, and actually looked at to what extent how, at a discursive level, either in review articles or in scientific discourse uh, more generally, conferences or in interviews, how is, genetic, how is the notion of genetics performed in relationship or constructing uh, new types of uh, disease categories. Hedgecoe talks about enlightened geneticism that pays some attention to the environment. Other people um, actually looking at how difficult it has turned out within scientific discourse to have a sort of simple application of these genetic ideas to the framing of particular diseases. I've done some work with Kate Vine and we actually looked at the biomedical literature um, 
within epidemiology, clinical uh, cardiology, uh, or lipidemiology, uh, molecular biology, in relationship to familial hypercholesterolemia and coronary heart disease. And what was very clear was that geneticization or genetics had very different meanings in those different domains and different status in those different domains. So even within biomedicine, there isn't one unitary notion of what a genetic disease might be. Familiar hypercholesterolemia, I should mention, is seen as a classic Mendelian condition that is inherited uh, in, you know, from your parents, basically. So it's, it's sort of similar to cystic fibrosis or those other things in terms of how it might be thought of. We've also done some work uh, with Richard Tutton, uh, George Allison, Richard Ashcroft, and Andy Smart on um, how gen- race has been constructed within uh, biomedicine within, in relation to gen- genetics. And what we found there was how difficult it was to standardise biological notions of race. They slip through the fingers, basically. So, um, I can, again, if you're interested in that, I can talk more about that. Uh, we did three years of work on, on that. Um, but I think the key thing is, in looking from this, this perspective, in general, this work is that even within sort of the scientific biomedical discourses, genetics pays out in very different ways depending on the field. And actually, the standardization of disease categories or notions like race are very difficult to, to grasp. Whether geneticization thesis has perhaps made or seems to make some most important claims is in relationship to common complex diseases. Um, so this idea that I think lots of people would say, well, of course, genetic notions around classic Mendelian conditions such as cystic fibrosis, Lyme's or FH, you know, we, we can accept that you know those thing, those entities are those diseases that are constructed very much on genetic lines, and that's where the starting point for all this happened. The anticipation implicit in the geneticization thesis and behind much of molecular medicine is that this would then be applied to the reconstruction of many common conditions. So it's prompted a massive search uh, within the field, the technical field, for genetic genes linked to or genetic markers associated with heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, I mean everything, essentially. And what's really interesting certainly in the first phase was um, the failure, really, of the first phase of the human genome project, the failure to find simple single genes that did that. The focus then shifted to finding these genetic markers, so a more complex narrative, a complex strategy, so-called association studies, where they're trying to correlate, people being trying to correlate in very large data sets, certain genetic markers with certain clinical phenotypes, certain disease categories, if you like. Uh, again, we can talk about that. Uh, but um, Oxford has been very central uh, in doing that. Um, the Welcome Centre here has been uh, pioneering some of that work. The bottom line is, and I'll talk a bit more about this this afternoon, the bottom line is that uh, relatively few markers have been found that have... Um, are, are strongly predictive of disease risk um, through macular degeneration in some areas. But the great hope of finding a set of markers that would, you could like, do a molecular pathology of these conditions, such as heart disease, has not come to pass in any simple way. That's an ongoing scientific debate about whether that strategy is, is broken or not. But um, 
Furthermore, though, even where there has been some solid knowledge about the relationship between genetic markers and disease risk established, there's been real problems translating that knowledge into um, things that are clinically validated and clinically useful in terms of everyday practice in the clinic. So I've done quite a lot of work. This has been one of the central focuses of my work over, over recent years. has been looking at this sort of progress, the difficulty of translating these scientific, new scientific knowledge into something that actually works. Or even more fundamentally, actually finding the knowledge that was being anticipated. Okay, so following on that, in terms of the clinic, we'll start talking about the clinic. Um, there's been a, a series of ethnographies, um, the Cardiff group in particular, um, associated with the centre there, Katie Ferguson's work, here, for example, um, looking at how these classic monogenic disorders, things like say, cystic fibrosis, but um, other rare disorders that in, uh, behave very much like you would expect if along Mendel's uh, findings, um, that even in there, that these genetic uh, technologies, such as tests, are not necessarily prioritised over forms of clinical knowledge. So that the new genetic technologies, when they've been brought into what are, might be seen as highly geneticised domains, are used in ways that don't necessarily always privilege uh, that, their, that type of knowledge. And rather that they emphasise, in terms of the interaction between the clinic and the laboratory, complexity. So rather than making things simple, you might have a genetic test that might make you know, your diagnosis and management of a particular condition more straightforward, it actually raises all sorts of issues of complexity. Because it turns out that even these classic monogenic conditions are much more variegated and complex than people initially anticipated. There's been ethnographies outside the genetics cl clinic. When I talk about the genetics clinic, I should say that's a speciality of clinical genetics. It's quite a small domain. So in other areas of healthcare, there's been work done on these various d d diseases shown here, polycystic kidney disease, um, showing that new genetic knowledge and these tests, for example, have had relatively little impact on the management or understanding of etiology. Similar findings in high cholesterol. I can talk more about Kate Viner's work. Um, what's interesting in relation to that is, um, so some aspects of coronary heart disease, this, this, this sort of Mendelian clinician called familiar high cholesterolemia, so it's inherited high cholesterol. I say it behaves just like a classic condition you inherited from your parents. What's interesting is it's always been treated by people who are lipidemiologists, by people who deal with high... Um, lipids in the, in the blood, basically, who are not geneticists. And even with the advent of new genetic technology, they, the paradigms they work within are those of biochemical lipidemiology. They're not being geneticized. So, so that even with this classic Mendelian condition, it's understood in genetic terms, it's treated like other, in many ways, like other forms of, for example, dietary high cholesterol. So there's interesting things there about the way in which the institutional and professional embedding of particular practices and forms of knowledge actually have a very powerful influence on the way in which new innovation, new knowledge is interpreted. Other work by Margaret Locke, um, Adam Hedgeco, looking at uh, Alzheimer's. So the key, the bottom line here is about how understandings depend very heavily on the clinical context. 
So this notion that you can take a new set of knowledge from the clinic, from molecular genetics, and transfer that in a way that would transform practice or transform our constructions of these, these diseases has proved to be very problematic. Third area, just for, more for amusement really, is, is a reflection on ethics and governance. Uh, okay, this um, in part is implied by uh, the genetic science thesis, and certainly um, what's interesting here is the 1990s saw the growth of governance frameworks around the world, particularly in the UK, uh, to control and regulate the use of different genetic technologies. These were predicated uh, on this notion of genetic exceptionalism. So it's essentially there was something special, unique, different about the predictive power of genetic technologies that made them essentially more dangerous or more socially problematic. Um, so um, genetics became a major focus within bioethics, so a whole load of work done in relationship to the ELSIs, I'd say, all predicated on this notion of the, of the transformative power of this knowledge. Um, so an example of that is this... Uh, there's a very common trope in the 1990s, and, and still there's a book by Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, recently on personalised medicine, that would still have something a bit like this, is that these technologies can help you anticipate what your future health status might be. So there's been a lot of debate and, and discussion about exceptionalism. Is genetic information really that different? Um, what are the risks associated with it? What's interesting is what's happened over time, so recently last year, for example, the government announced the abolition of some of the dedicated regulatory and governance committees associated with genetics in the UK, uh, closing down the Human Genetics Commission and the Genetics uh, and Insurance Committee. Um, whether this we can we think of this as degeneticisation, um, I don't know, but it, it's interesting, and that this is a, a trend that's starting to happen in other countries as well. That we're no longer there's no longer seem to be the same need for tight governance, and I think some of those debates about exceptionalism have been have been won. People like Ron Zimmern, a clinical clinician in, in public health genetics in Cambridge, has made a strong case for saying, in most cases, genetic information doesn't have or the types of genetic information clinicians use doesn't have that type of power. Doesn't evoke the same the sort of level of social and ethical issues that we might have thought about. We might also reflect on there haven't been that many of the anticipated societal problems. There could be two reasons for this. Either these things have not come to pass, that you know, the technology has not come into practice, or actually we've been very successful in governing and regulating the worst aspects of these technologies. And we can, you can guess where I'm coming from, but you, you can, um, we can debate that later. Okay, so my four, four from penultimate category around popular culture... So there's been some interesting work done by sociologists looking at the metaphors using framing genomics, and particularly think of the work of my colleague in Nottingham, Bukit and Nerlik and her group. So this is the, looking at ways in which the sort of cultural tropes, the metaphors about the Book of Life, about maps, about blueprints, um, have travelled. And there's no doubt that these genetic metaphors have become very, very commonplace. So they've spread... They're uh, very widespread. So, in that sense, you know, geneticization of some aspects of the mass media and public culture around some areas has, has occurred. However, having, having said that, um, other studies have shown that genes are not constructed as the primary or sole determinants of disease in many countries in terms of 
popular accounts, either in the media or in books or fiction, things like that. And studies of, of experts in lay knowledge genetics um, have also complicated things by suggesting, you know, as we might expect, that the transmission of this type of immunology, these cultural tropes, the circulation of, of, of these things, doesn't occur in anything like a linear fashion. It's highly complex, it's framed by existing cultural understandings of health and illness, of hereditary, about blood ties and kinship and those sorts of things. This is very relevant in terms of a lot of government policy over the years have been uh, about public uh, understanding of science communication and initially uh, was predicated on a very linear, simplistic model. I think people now say the deficit model has been abandoned, but you know, I think there's still certain assumptions that educational programmes to win public consent will somehow ameliorate these, and this works well, very relevant in that sense. It's been media analysis, looking at trends in public sentiments about whether people support or oppose the new genetics, and again, Martin Bauer's work here. What that's shown is a rapid rise in stories about genetics after the mid-1980s. So again, there are things happening here that are very significant in terms of the circulation of these ideas. But what's interesting is that some work suggesting that discourse in the 1990s are uh, being less deterministic about people's fate, about the link between inheritance and health outcome, if you like, or disease status, than were the case in the 1960s. So it's slightly complicated, even those though those tropes and ideas of knowledge is more, more popular and widely circulated, that it's framed as maybe a slightly different way. So it, it, doesn't make a, it doesn't assume that just because there's more genetic knowledge out there that we then necessarily believe in, in, in the power of the gene to determine our fate. Though Condit and other people have argued that that's still very... These, these ideas still have a lot of currency, in this case in the US... And I think the key thing, the key message here, is that long-standing hereditarian views that predate the molecular genetic revolution uh, by a long period of time, go back many centuries, if you like, notions of blood ties, um, notions of hereditary, which are not uh, genetic in the sense of Mendelian, uh, you know, they're much more Lamarckian, so in the sense of, you know, acquired characteristics will be inherited and you know these, these lay accounts are, are, are complex they're sophisticated it's unclear if there's been any fundamental shift in those with the advent of the new genetics again quite you know we can debate that um, I'm not uh, an authority on this particular area then finally lay discourse and practice this is a kinship thing that I'm quite nervous about talking about um, there's been work obviously done on um, I think there's made some generalisations about the so-called medicalisation of kinship. I think uh, Martin and Kate would say there's relatively little evidence about that. Um, Sarah Gibbon's work has looked at the genetization of kinship in relationship to breast cancer, in particular hereditary breast cancer, and the way in which uh, notions of kinship and family ties are being mediated through things like the family pedigree of the genetics. Um, so I think those are quite powerful ways in which uh, kin relationships are being imagined and mediated. But I think the point we want to make is there's a long history of those that predates the new genetics, goes back to eugenics, the early genetics clinics in the 1940s. So again, uh, that's a, uh, something that's been around quite a while. And they're used by different clinicians in different ways. Um, 
So again, little evidence of the strong use of genetic discourses by these patients beyond that that are already established within this, this sort of hereditarian framework and notions of these blood ties. I know that some people might disagree with that. We were talking about earlier about whether that's the case and I may stand corrected, but... I think, coming towards the end now, this sort of view, so flagging, nearly there. Um, I think it's been worked down as I mentioned Kate Vine's work again, which is uh, ethnographic, uh, looking at lay perceptions, complex disorders, which have a genetic component. In this case, familiar hypercholesterolemia, to use that example again. What's really interesting is her work shows that um, that people see this as these, these conditions, this inherited high cholesterol, as running in families. They'll have narratives about, oh, my uncle George died of you know heart disease when he was 45, or my father had this. When they go to the genetic clinic and they're told they've got FH, the definitive diagnosis that it's a genetic condition. What's interesting, it doesn't necessarily transform the way they think about either themselves, their condition, or their relationship to other people. They may think, okay, well, maybe I should tell my, uh, you know, my sister that I've been diagnosed with this, there's issues about that. But it's not necessarily associated with a very strong genetic identity. So some of the work done on, say, Huntington's disease, uh, by Carlos Novus or other people, has suggested that these new biosocial identities come into being, are being created in relationship to this new genetic knowledge. But we start thinking about ourselves in different ways. I think Kate's work and other people's work with us, that's not the case. Margaret Locke's work on, on Alzheimer's, um, Scott's work on, on heritage cancer. So, um, I said the quite of that is, is quite a lot of that work is ethnographic and quite detailed. Finally, my last slide on these, this sort of sequence here, there's been some very interesting developments in genetic testing outside the clinic. There's not been that much work done on this in relationship to two areas, ancestry and paternity. There's been quite a lot of work done in relation to race and ancestry, which you can, might talk about. But essentially there's new types of testing that try to look at, um, some of you are probably familiar with this, you can hire a genetic test, I can have a genetic test now, and you look and tell me how much of my heritage is from Africa, from North America, from Europe, or from Asia. I mean, and the, the people will start to define these in, in slightly more complicated ways. And this work, these tests have been, I think, become very popular in some communities, Afro-American communities in the States, for example. There's been a lot of interest in uh, sort of roots narratives and, and work about trying to identify which part of Africa your family may have come from when they were slaves. Um, and there's been some very interesting stories uh, about that, about people finding you know, that they came from North Ghana or, or things like that. Equally, there's been some shocking revelations where a number of black activists who are very engaged with the, the politics of race in the States have found out from these genetic tests they have very little to do with Africa. In fact, most of their heritage is white. So there's been all sorts of sort of destabilising effects uh, around this. Um, so there's been ways in which this type of te te these technologies have been involved in um, reshaping notions of nation, race, uh, relationless with place and history. Um, in relationship to paternity testing, so paternity testing, I'm sure you're aware, aware of will can definitively define if a man is the, the biological father of a child or not. And the non-paternity rate is thought to be around, depends on, very much on the social context, 
half a percent, one percent, in some communities maybe two or three percent. I mean, it's quite controversial as a figure, but nonetheless, clinical geneticists in the UK working in the health service come across this on a fairly regular basis that there is, you know, the child is not the child, the biological child of the father, basically. Um, so there's all sorts of ways in which they handle that. What's interesting in, in the context of the geneticization thesis is that I think there's clear evidence of shifts in the way in which notions of fatherhood and genetic relatedness are being constructed. So I think uh, there's a much stronger sense in which biological paternity is seen, is now being privileged. That's expressed in things like legal acts in the UK, uh, court rulings about child's genetic identity. Um, so I think that's an area where we can see quite strong changes in relationship to this specific domain. Okay. So, I've gone, covered a load of stuff, and apologies if it's an awful lot to take on. I'm wanting to make a general argument, so I said it at the start. So, just a quick recap. This is rather crude. So, in science, little geneticization of common complex diseases, issues of translation. In clinical practice, testosterone had a, a, only a limited role and impact in the clinic. In ethics and governance, data is not generally seen as exceptional. There's been this process of, of sort of deregulation. In popular culture, we've seen a very significant increase in, in the circulation of these genetic tropes or whatever, but no cultural revolution in how we think about ourselves, uh, no reduction to determinism. And then finally, in later sports and practice, a durability of pre-existing hereditarian ideas. And although not general, some areas of identity have been geneticized. Others, such as race, remain highly contingent. So that's sort of a very crude summary of what I think that social science research has shown in relationship to the new genetics. So I'm, I'm, I know it's skating over a lot of nuance and things like that. So going back to those six headings at the beginning, we think about assessing the geneticization thesis, and I'm being a bit cheeky doing this really, but so in thinking about it being a dominant discourse, I think in science and biomedicine, that's, that's very much the case. And some aspects of the mass media, I think, in relation to some aspects of health and disease, I think we can say, yes, science and, and biomedicine are very strongly uh, geneticized. But in more generally, outside those domains, genetics sits alongside other narratives of health and illness. Uh, which have definitely not been geneticized. In terms of being reductionist or deterministic, I think we can say quite categorically that even within biomedicine itself, there's been a shift away from these sorts of ideas that instead emphasizing complexity about gene environment interaction. And that's even extended to the monogenic conditions that have been made more complicated by recent discoveries. Have you seen the genetic stratification of society? I think in terms of disease risk, that's been very limited. You can talk about that if you're interested. Racial identities, I think not really. I don't think we've seen a new type of reification of biological race um, that starts to stratify people along genetic, uh, genetic lines. I think that's not happened. <clears throat> Affects healthcare values and attitudes. It's had a powerful impact in framing disease in science and mass media, but limited impact in clinical practice and layer counts. I think that will be the sort of conclusion here. 
merged at the same time. What's interesting is that Littman and his other critics, and not just Littman, were anticipating this, um, you know, the, the dominance, the hegemony of a sort of biomedical view of the world. I think what's really interesting at the same time, books like The Spirit Level, which are about the social determinants of health, the way in which uh, social position determines health status, about the arguments for a more equal society. So completely counter <coughs> the geneticization thesis have emerged at the same period. So we can't say it's simply this has become the dominant framework for how we think about values and attitudes in terms of health. I think very limited impact in the clinic, problems of translation and... Uh, I think more fundamentally, I would argue that this is, from a scientific and technical point of view, the wrong model about how we might think of the relationship between genes and disease. And then finally, genetic research is imperative for future health. I think this is one area that still remains the case, certainly in the UK and the States, um, many other countries as well. Genetics remains the, one of the preeminent ways in which we might think about future improvements in health status. The constant stream of reports about the biotechnology industry, which I can talk about again further this afternoon. Um, so I think that's, that's, you know, is an area that continuously, if you like, to be geneticised in that way. I think it's what's interesting for me is the way in which these expectations have remained very high in the face of, of disappointment. Um, and I, I'd argue there's been a reframing, a constant shifting over time of the way in which we think about what genomics is, what genetics is, what it has to offer. So the turn towards so-called personalization, personalized medicine, I think is the latest incarnation of that. So what the meaning of these things over time is shifts around in terms of how we think about those expectations. So the expectations today are not the same as they were 20 years ago, but they still promise the future associated with genetics and genomics. And then finally, the power of geneticists. Well, I think this has been extremely limited in redefining health, disease, and behaviour. I think we see a very much more diffuse nature of biomedical knowledge, different types of epistemic domains, different types of professional practice and knowledge claims being made, competing traditions and forms of expertise. And I think what's also been brought in, which wasn't part of the initial discourse around geneticisation by Lubin, was the power of lay actors. So I think... Those are interesting to, to think about. Okay. Just to, I'm just about to wrap up. So why didn't it happen? I'd argue it's not due to ethical problems. Sometimes progress is seen as, oh, well, it doesn't happen because of the, the sort of resistance from people because of ethical problems or effective regulation. I think in some cases, maybe there's been some practices being outlawed by effective regulation. But I think it's in a really complex mix of things that have, have sort of, for why this has maybe not come to pass. I think the intransigence of nature, I can't think of a better way of putting it. I mean, these things have just not sort of worked as anticipated, technically. Um, but I don't want to sort of say, that's it, you know, coming from science and technology studies, saying that something doesn't work is, is a whole can of worms. So, uh, you know, it's not that simple. The challenge of translation, I think how you transform knowledge from one domain, science, into practice in other social domains, in particular at the clinic, is extremely complicated. Um, we can talk more about that. The power of existing discourses and institutions. The hereditarian, long-standing hereditarian framing, other social framings, I think, have been very powerful in terms of um, sort of 
shaping our understandings, other institutions, professional institutions, other competing forms of knowledge, I think have also been really important in mediating the new genetic knowledge. So I think there's implications. I think in terms of the validity of important concepts, for example, biosociality, I'm rather critical of that these days, this idea that new biological identities, social identities are being created around this knowledge, because really, I think that's happening. I think there's need for empirical research continuing in this area, but I suppose that I think the focus now might be on these new areas such as ancestry, race, uh, paternity testing, notions of kinship, I mean, this obviously would appeal to an anthropology audience, but also issues around clinical practice, about how can we understand the relationship of new knowledge to existing practices in the clinic, and about expectation dynamics, my area. How these, what, what is it about these expectations that is so enduring? Policy terms is about the allocation of resources. The genomics bandwagon in terms of, I say, future health policy is still very strong. Um, my argument would be, I think genomics has a place in the mix, but it shouldn't be seen as the only fix. There are other health policy op uh, options about more mundane technologies, about the utility of things we already know but don't implement, that maybe should be paid much more attention. We should go back to the Littman critique, clearly the socio-economic determinants of health. We know about those. So social programmes, public health programmes are perhaps in the short term, certainly the long term, maybe going to give more bang for our buck in terms of research. So my final slide, I'm interested in reflecting on the relationship between social sciences and the role in making what I'm going to call genetic futures. This is coming back to the sociology of expectations. Why has there been so much interest in genetics from social sciences and bioethics? This is a question. What, what's drawn... I mean, I, I've got an excuse because I was trained there as a molecular biologist, so I, I'm, I'm sort of a believer, really. So, but why... Why have other people got, been drawn down this road? I think it's partly about the shared belief in the power of the technology. I think it is there's something about narratives of progress and modernity. Um, I, I'm not quite sure about that. But I'd argue that social science itself is one of the things that's been geneticised. This is my ironic twist here, that I think the, the evidence, if we do the audit, we can say pretty strongly social science you know, has, bought, has bought this view of the world bought the genetic tickets, both institutionally and in terms of concepts. And can we think of geneticization itself as a form of expectation if we're coming from this perspective? So, the final point, what is our role in the making of socio-technical futures? There's a big debate in STS about what relationship we as scholars should have to these emerging disciplines such as synthetic biology or stem cells or re artificial reproduction. Are we going in there sort of saying, this is going to happen, this is the future? In part, we have an interest in doing that because it helps us get grants, um, write interesting papers. Um, what are we asked to do in, in bargains for collaboration? So I'm engaged with a lot of debates because we're people involved in these types of collaborations um, to think about those questions. And then finally, <coughs> should we get rid of geneticisation? Has its time come? Should it rest in peace? I'll leave it there. Thank you.